Hi everyone, this is Morgan Phelps with Acuity Brands. Welcome back to the Women in Sustainability Design the Future podcast. We have created this podcast to elevate the voices of women driving sustainable practices in the built environment. We hope you find their stories inspirational and helpful to the work that you do. The hosts for these conversations are industry veterans, Lindsay Baker and Kiara Gold. Let's get started. Hi everyone. Thanks for joining us again this week on Women in Sustainability Design the Future. Uh, we're really happy to be back for another week. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. Yeah. Um, so, hi, Kira. How's, how's the summer treating you? The summer is, I, I guess it's shaping up to be a summer. It's not really like one that we've seen before, but it is <laughs> very yeah. interesting. Lots of interesting things happening. Um, I was just thinking about how there, you know, there's a lot of stress going around. People are very, I, I think, you know, challenged to process all that is happening. Um, but it also feels to me like there's this undercurrent of this is necessary and feels like progress. There's a lot of that lurking yeah. in there too. So I, it's interesting. I mean, I'm finding it, I don't know. I, I think we're, we're testing our ability to um, adapt and to really kind of maybe see a different path, which is. Yeah, yeah good thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling energized um, this week. I mean, it's still, you know, we, we've talked about this, that like a lot of where the energy comes from is still heartbreak and rage and discomfort and guilt and shame and all those things, you know, but, uh, yes. but it's, um, but you know, you get, you kind of, I, I think uh, you spend enough time thinking about these things and you start to have plans for yes. what you do and those plans are energizing or like last week I spent a bunch of time shooting people down on Twitter when they said things that were inappropriate and it was actually kind of energizing to do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know um, that uh, was great yeah I, I have actually my partner and I've been spending some time thinking about how, how to participate as allies in a more methodical way there's a lot of various social media posts about these kinds of things but i was sort of trying to break it down into like things i want to make sure i do every month and there's uh there's some obvious ones that people talk about a lot of you know charitable giving and and um you know writing your congress people about things reading books mm -hmm. um, but we were trying to kind of come up with a way to say these are the things we do in order to be a part of the movement and and notably not just to say that you're um or you know to in, in other words to be a part of the anti-racist movement it's like not just about feeling like you've done everything you need to do it's yes. that's not the point of it the right. point of it is to feel like you're a part of the movement like you're genuinely showing up every I month think that's true and i think it's interesting to see what that looks like in various sectors and industries and i think it has something to do with what does sort of speaking up look like in your day-to-day yeah. -day life in your profession or your field or your subfield i mean there's a lot of fields that may think they're kind of adjacent to issues of racism and no, there's no such thing of course yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <So>. yeah. no <laughs> racism isn't sort of an object that you look no. at far yeah no yeah. and it's everywhere i mean it's it's yeah. It's everywhere. It's really about how we're seeing it. And then of course, how we choose to speak about it in those yeah. contexts. And it's not always, you know, really, 
comfortable, but that's sort of the point, as you mentioned. This is yeah. a lot yeah. of discomfort associated with that. But yeah, it, totally. And I, and I think you know, I mean, in case it hasn't been clear, the past few weeks that we've been talking about this on the podcast, mm-hmm. I want to just say to the listeners out there, if you haven't um, taken some time to educate yourself and to question the role that you can play in being a part of the anti-racist movement that is, you know, really growing here uh, right now and in, well, in the world, but specifically in the U.S., I I, I hope you will do that. I hope you'll take that time. I know we're all very busy, but this is, um, you know, it it needs everyone and it needs the awareness of everyone um, at the very the very least. Um, so I'm sure you've seen whatever you, <laughs> whatever is on social media, someone's already probably given you plenty of resources you can go to. Yeah. But uh, I just wanted to make sure I'd been pretty explicit in saying on the podcast that I really hope everyone takes the time to do that. Um, it, it's something that I think we all have a responsibility to do, uh, to, to educate ourselves, to stay educated, to, to continue to use our voices, to really repair and uh, fix the injustices that we have sort of structurally in our society today. Yep. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying too, there's, I was, we, the discomfort gets mentioned a lot, but it is also a really productive learning process for any organization, um, industry or group of any kind, right? It's, it's that way individually, but it's also that way for any groups. And I think it's, it, it uh, brings up a lot of different issues about, you know, what people see and don't see and, and all of that. I mean, I just think it can be very positive rather than just uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of people who manage to be very positive while also bringing up important issues and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, fa- facing the powers of the world, I'm very excited about our guest for the week, Marge Anderson. Uh, welcome, Marge. Hey, thank you. Um, it- Amen to everything you you women have just covered. <laughs> well, we're 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 excited to have your voice uh, on on this week of any of, of all weeks. But thank you for being here and for for your leadership. And we're just so happy that you're with us. Yeah, um, Marge is an executive vice president with Slipstream. She's joining us from Wisconsin. Slipstream is a nonprofit that creates, tests, delivers, and scales the next generation of energy efficiency and renewable energy programs. And I'll let Marge tell us more about Slipstream, but I want to, Marge, I think the best place to start would be to tell us just a little bit about how and why you got involved in renewable energy and the sustainable building industry more generally, what, what has been your path? Sure. Um, well, you asked me when we were prepping for this to think about my past in terms of what would help other people. And I, what I've been telling other people for the last few years is don't worry if you didn't study or prepare for a career in sustainability that's okay because I didn't either and it's never too late whether you were working at the beef roux or corn detasseling which are both work experiences I've had you can still be a leader in sustainability Um, I think about my past experiences that were foundational coming from a faith community that focused on social justice and grandmothers and mothers and great aunts who were very, um, spent most of their time in the woods and were very rooted in nature. And my Rust Belt upbringing with a blue collar dad um, 
and uh, who was the son of a of an immigrant, um, and how that makes me think about the American dream. Those are all experiences I had before I started thinking about getting a job that really impact the choices that I've made since then. And then I also attended a women's college and that really helped me find my own voice and the confidence to use it. And it was the first time that I'd experienced myself as a working class woman Mm -hmm. um, because it was a pretty elite institution. And I, when I was working in the dish room and the women with lots of money wouldn't dump their chicken bones in the garbage and I was throwing them back out the dish room window at them, I realized, oh yeah, I get this because I'm different than they are. I'm working class. Um, so I, I wasn't focused on a career. I majored in modern lyric poetry and <laughs> played video games as a lass. And um, my first job was as an activist raising money door to door on environmental issues. Um, And not because that was my compelling driver, but because they would hire an English major who'd read a lot of poetry. And um, that really taught me, you know, a lot of resilience and that one person really can make a difference. Um, I learned a lot about how you have to motivate and inspire yourself when you're doing this kind of work. And I, I found through there that the mission really was more important than the money to me. And then I had a bunch of low-level marketing jobs in um, architectural engineering firms and went to work at an energy services company. Um, and that's when I really started to learn about energy efficiency. And I didn't really have any qualifications for those jobs, except that they were led by women who were a little bit lonesome for some entertaining company in a male-dominated field. And that's how I got both of those jobs. And then they put up with me until I learned what I was doing. Um, So I think it's really okay to tell people that they can be a late bloomer. And I didn't really start working on my career until I was 32 when I joined Slipstream. That was really my first professional job around buildings and energy. And I was hired to create education programs. And because it was a nonprofit, there's a lot more leeway and freedom, I think, in a lot of nonprofits to follow whatever path you think can make an impact. And because nonprofits are often strapped for capacity, people aren't really always supervising you. So, you know, I looked around and I saw all these smart engineers, mostly men around me. And I thought, well, I'm a great communicator. That's what I can do. And so I really committed to figuring out how to design education programs Mm -hmm. that would drive behavior change and spent a lot of my early part of my career in design of programs leveraging the technical expertise of the people around me. Um, And then Inconvenient Truth came out and I made the connections between energy and climate and all of those faith and activism and confidence and voice pieces came together and kind of pushed me, gave me a really big push in the right direction. Wow, Marge, that is an awesome arc you have just painted. I love that, (laughs) it's really great. well, and I I described Slipstream in a very sort of glib sentence. I wonder if you could give us a little bit more about Slipstream specifically, sort of what it does, what that organization's about. Sure. We are a nonprofit. We're based in Madison, but we've got a really strong office also in Chicago, and we've got um, some project offices around the country. And we do a few things. Uh, almost everything is focused on advancing energy efficiency and energy efficiency is part of the clean energy formula. And so we do a lot of financing 
for running financing programs to help businesses and consumers uh, make energy efficiency improvements or drive deep efficiency in their new construction programs. We also have a, a run quite a few programs, uh, especially impacting new construction in the commercial sector. Mm -hmm. um, probably our biggest program there is in Chicagoland, where we've had an impact on probably 50 or 60 percent of the commercial new construction happening in Northern Illinois over the last 10 years or so. And now we're really focusing on affordable housing in that market as well. Um, and then we also do a lot of education and training. And behind all of this is this magical research organization that is always looking for the new answers. You know, what are we going to do now that we've installed LEDs? Okay, how do we make sure that controls and other technologies are getting us the absolute maximum performance out of this building? How do buildings need to perform on the grid? What's the connection between energy and health? Um, so our, our research engine is behind there really driving all the kind of the next generation of solutions there. And my group does um, a lot of the communicating and um, quite a bit of the education design right. and implementation. I love that holistic research agenda that as a backdrop to all of that work. And, I, and I'm really intrigued by the focus on sort of impact um, across the board. I wonder what you would suggest that people know or think about um, who are interested in entering the nonprofit world. What should they be good at or interested in? Well, for nonprofit in particular, people should not assume that nonprofits are always going to pay less. Some do. Some nonprofits are really capacity constrained. And, I, you know, as a society, we don't invest enough in the nonprofit sector. But in the energy space and climate space, you can definitely earn a good living and earn market rates. Um, Skill-wise, I think you can pretty much be good at anything. Uh, if you're choosing a technical path, in my opinion, in energy and climate, if you really want to make a difference, you have to be exceptional on the technical side, because if you're kind of just mediocre technically, you're going to end up in lower risk projects that don't really push the envelope. So innovation is a really important focus. Um, if you choose communications or an education path, it's really about inspiring behavior change and the communications discipline in nonprofit requires make, not being afraid to make an emotional connection, staying abreast of how people consume information today because we're in fact an information overload and being a really great storyteller. And then for my friends who want to choose policy, um, I think it's really important to focus on coalition building and to focus as much on impact as on ideas, which doesn't always happen in the policy sector. And then qualities wise, I think that's what's really the most important, like obsessively curious people, people who can really listen. I think people who are willing to act with real urgency because with climate, we've got nine and a half years left to get this right. And on equity, we're already 400 years too late. Um, I believe in persistent optimism because the neuroscience tells us that pessimism stops action. The only way to move forward is to be optimistic. And so persistence comes with that. And then for women, I think still in this field, we have to be prepared to claim the space for our priorities and for the way to prioritize the way we work, the way we listen, the way we collaborate. I've worked with a lot of 
um, businessmen in my generation who really see professional relationships as transactions. And that's really a no-go if you want to create sustained change. And then I, I, I really, um, as a white woman, I feel obligated to fight for the floor space for my colleagues of color and to get out of the way and let them lead, which is hard because you probably already can re recognize I talk a lot and um, it takes, it's, I'm practicing, it takes an enormous amount of self-discipline, but um, if we're not satisfied with the status quo, we need all this, these new ideas and different perspectives and energy and, and we've got to um, step aside and take our turn. Oh man, there's so much there, Marge. I, I just want to, first of all, I want to say how much I love the way that you talked about having nine and a half years left, um, yep. but being 400 years too late. But I've always struggled with how to articulate that uh, point, but um, in some ways, we there is a real urgency. We are running against a deadline here, but it's not to say that the harm hasn't already been done at such a scale that is completely heartbreaking and, and yep. incomprehensible, you know, that that's a tricky balance. I think you, you said it very well. So thank you for that. Hopefully I, I can command that to memory. Uh, good thing we're recording. I can, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so with all of these experiences, all this wisdom you've accumulated, I am very curious to hear about what you're most proud of, uh, what you, in, in your work life, however broadly you want to define that so far anyway. Yeah, that's funny you said wisdom because I don't feel very wise every day. I make stupid mistakes every day. Um, and I do think some of the things I'm the most proud of are mistakes, surviving mistakes. And I think that's what I try to help my nieces with is go ahead and make a bunch of stupid mistakes and then figure out how to pick yourself back up and be better afterwards. Um, I think for women, learning to take ourselves seriously and our intentions seriously and our impact seriously is essential to leveraging our capabilities to create change. And that's, um, I'm pretty proud of my own journey there, but I also practice all the time. Um, I played the violin when I was a kid and the violin has a mute that you can put on, which is a little rubber thing that goes on the bridge and it quiets the whole instrument down. I think if you've seen trumpets with a rubber stopper in the bell, same thing. And I think women are socialized to keep the mute on um, so that our voice is there, but we're always conciliating and making everything better and harmonizing. And I think um, sometimes taking that mute off and speaking at full power is really important. Um, I try to use my voice to help other people, especially women and people of color, especially younger people find their voice or get their voice heard, amplify. One of the things in life that I'm the most proud of that I don't think women talk about enough is that I had two impossible parents and they were both chronically ill for over 20 years and I took care of both of them um, through both the illness and also poverty for one of them and despair and made it possible for my mom to have a really good death and this is the job that women do and we never talk about it but it was certainly the most profound accomplishment for me in my life. And then 
on a professional level also super grateful to have chaired the U.S. Green Building Council in 2015 when we uh, went through a massive transformation in governance and leadership and just really grateful that through USGBC I was able to be on the ground in Paris during the climate talks. Um, that, that was a, a real privilege and a, and a great moment. Yeah, I can only imagine. I remember Some. thinking like, man, to be in Paris right now, to, to watch all that happen. Yeah. Um, well, I, it, speaking of uh, places and some of the background that you've had, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about growing up living in Wisconsin and how that has informed the way that you work in the green building movement. Uh, you know, just sort of how how that how you've come to understand your voice versus other voices in the room, whether with USGBC or or elsewhere. What's that been like for you? What do you think you've you've learned or contributed to the to the movement in that sense? Yes, Wisconsin's an interesting place. Um, we are a cussedly independent place, not very diverse, and our we have a couple of major cities that are quite segregated due to the great migration settling patterns and restrictive zoning laws and other forms of structural racism that we had over the last hundred years. And it's also a place where kindness is generally valued. And uh, we have, you know, we have a lot of pretty Scandinavian and German cultural beliefs here. And I grew up in the Rust Belt in a town called Janesville that there's actually been some national coverage on because mm -hmm. we our biggest employer was General Motors and we also had a the Parker Penn headquarters for many many decades both of those are gone now and um, you know we went from being a very liberal blue union first state over the years to um, we sometimes vote red although we're also the most gerrymandered state in the country. So, um, so my personal view is this kind of civil people of different views getting along and figuring it out together and still maintain, in my childhood, we maintained shared communal values, even if we voted differently. And then my dad, you know, he wore his name on his shirt and he was not an executive. And I was the first person in my family to go to college. My dad didn't even graduate from high school. And I acutely aware of having a working class background with, a, you know, with kind of a more elite education tacked on afterwards. And members of my family still have, you know, live a pretty working class existence. And I've got folks in my family that have experienced homelessness. And, and I think that gives me a different lens than a lot of my very professional colleagues who've had remarkable educations and came from middle-class families and and in the green building movement there are lots of people who've had a lot more education than me um, but don't understand how poverty influences decision making and maybe also don't understand the incredible resilience in poor communities and the coping strategies and survival strategies that you have when you when you don't have money yeah so much power so much more to say um but yeah. thank you for bringing that voice yeah. to the table i i um i feel like we need it more than we even have it as a resource in the in the community now which is certainly part of why we are all trying to fight for more representation of women and people of color in our in our community so thank you for that yeah. 
So uh, speaking a little bit more about our community and your leadership in it, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about where we need to go as a community, in particular, some of the, like the USGBC or green building nonprofits in general, where, where is the urgency that we need to pick up on more? Yeah, this is an interesting question because it's a topic in every nonprofit that I'm involved with. Um, I serve on a couple of boards and um, we talk about it at Slipstream and I know it's been a big conversation at USGBC, especially since Mahesh Ramanujam has taken over as CEO and he had a very different upbringing than, than our founder, Rick Fadrizi, being an Indian and um, having grown up in a much even more unequal society. Um, this equity conversation and doubling down on equity is happening all across the green building movement. And we also have a shortage of talent of um, community-based folks at the table right now. I think there's kind of a frantic effort to try to reconcile that and to make up for that and to fill some of those gaps so that we've got all of the perspectives that we need at the table where I think on an institutional level we all have to do a lot more work is maybe changing some of the ways that we do things as we learn more about how the structural impacts have held us back from the impact we should be having so you know I feel really proud of and optimistic of the progress the green building movement has changed has made over the last even 20 years you know the first green build was only 18 years ago and now we've got people inside the movement who say we should you know we need to be closer to net zero and net positive on energy we have to be at 100 percent inclusion that impatience is super important and at the same time we have to have what that the poet adrian rich called a wild patience because we have to have both. We have to keep pushing against the status quo and still look look constantly at the progress we've made. Like here in Wisconsin, regular builders who don't read anything about green building are building above the energy code because that's what they think quality looks like. Yeah, I love that idea of the wild patience. I've, yeah. uh, we've talked about this on the podcast every once in a while, but I've always been someone that believes in cooperation, consensus, conversation, et cetera. Um, and that it sometimes sounds like you're saying that you don't need to go out in the streets and yell. Uh, and I actually think yeah. both are important, but you know, I, I, the, the patience that it takes to really work through, you know, how all of this works for everyone, how we make sure that we're not leaving people behind. It's, it's well, and a, we, yeah. we needed to combat despair because it's, the, you know, we see every day how much farther and longer the road is that we have to walk to mitigate climate change, to rebuild a society that's not racist, but despair just stops us in our tracks. And there's a quote from Tony Juniper, who was a climate consultant to the Prince of Wales that I love to use. It says, it's too late for pessimism. And there's days I just have to be like, okay, it's too late for pessimism today because we just don't have time for that. Yeah. yeah. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I love that too. Well, okay. So I, I guess speaking of those types of things, we want to ask you if you 
we, we're, we've been discussing these issues as sort of the industry versus the movement um, in, in the podcast recently. And I want to ask you if you feel like you are a part of a movement or an industry or both. And how do you how do you know, uh, you know, the difference between those two or do you? Yeah, when you asked me ahead of time if I thought I was part of a movement, I definitely say yes to that, um, partly because that's how I frame my own work and what motivates me. And, and I can see the trajectory. Um, the conversations are different than they were 20 years ago because I was around 20 years ago in some of those conversations when people, when the big conversation was we can't afford to do it green or <laughs> the client isn't asking for that. And now what we're hearing is the client's not asking for social equity in the building, right? right, um, right. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, I look at it as the same thing. Well, we'll figure out a way to make them buy it and like it, um, just like we did with all the other stuff. So I, I think that we definitely are in a movement and it is an industry. It's big business, just in energy efficiency where I um, spend most of my time. It's kind of a a hidden industry and in that people don't really realize how many jobs there are there and how well those jobs pay, whether it's creating the new technologies or doing a lot. There's a lot of research in that space or just installing high efficiency, high performance equipment and um, fixtures and things. It's and just the infrastructure that runs utility funded um, energy efficiency programs is a is a big infrastructure in the United States. Lots of really good jobs and a real industry. It would be great if we would flex our collective power a little bit more. Yeah. Right. Amen. Amen to that. For sure. Well, Margie mentioned that sort of nine and a half years left thing, which is really a powerful. Yep. Giddy up. <laughs> but I just and and of course you have been you have a memory of the arc of change within this industry and the movement. And I just wondered if you thought this is where we would be in 2020. You know, did you think we'd be farther along or are we where we where we needed to be? Yeah. In some ways I think we're farther ahead than I could have dreamed. And then in some ways I'm like, you know, like look at affordable housing. First, you know, yes, we're having this conversation about how to make affordable housing more efficient and bring more people who live in affordable housing onto the renewable grids and creating community solar and all those great things. But the reality is there's um, something like 20 million people that don't even have access to affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And the fastest growing jobs in America, several of them will not allow a person to rent a modest one bedroom apartment on the wages that they pay. And so we have these big structural barriers, you know, we need to decide as a society that we're going to make sure that shelter is going to happen for people. It, you know, the built environment is a primary determinant, determinant um, of health, a social determinant of health. And we just are not investing enough as a society. And then we can talk about making sure that all of that shelter is healthy and equitable and um, creates more resilient cities and helps support people get getting to work and things like that. So mm -hmm that's the part that frustrates me. I look at it like the gay rights movement. You know, if you would have asked me 20 years ago, if gay marriage would be happening in the United States, I'd be like, no, 
but my wife and I have now married each other, I think three times. I don't know. She, wow. we, we, That's an overachiever, Marge. Yeah, she, it's her. She loves a wedding and uh, it's a long story, but, um, but I, I never thought I would see that kind of equality in my lifetime. So I've seen miracles happen. And um, I feel like this moment in history in June of 2020 might be one of those magical inflection points for racism. Yeah, I hope, really I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it seems that that actually relates to this, the question that this brings up for me, which is a little bit about something I think you have tried to do in your work and in various leadership roles, but is really to have this more holistic view of what progress looks like that, I mean, because I, I have had people ask me recently, well, you know, race doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> Things like yeah, that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and to be fair, they're, they're honestly not seeing that. And that's a, it's good to be asking that question, but yep. it, you know, obviously you have, you know, when you, when I asked you about the industry and you went quickly to affordable housing I mean, that notion of all those things connecting is very anti silo, which is the old way of doing this. And I, that seems so important to me in terms of identifying how progress can happen. I'm not sure there's a question in there, but I, I really yeah. do think it's important. Um, and it, I think your research agenda at Substream sort of speaks to that, right? It touches yeah. all these different areas. To the point of identifying impact, how have, I mean, how have you been able to use that holistic lens to find where impact is possible? We're doing uh, not as much as we should. And Slipstream's kind of new on this journey as well. We are, uh, um, I said I've worked there for over 25 years, but in various forms, the company's taken various forms. And we're in 2019, one, the nonprofit that I came from merged with another nonprofit to form Slipstream. So we're using that merger as a new excuse to do all kinds of things, including working really hard on diversity and inclusion inside a largely white organization. And um, that's, that's been fantastic. And we can see we got a ton of work to do. Um, and then I think about, as I reflect on Wisconsin, one of the areas Slipstream's really strong in is um, making manufactured homes, that's what most people would call a trailer, um, safer, healthier, more durable, energy efficient, energy efficient for the people who live there. And as I think about the equity work that's being done, um, we focus a lot on cities because of density and the opportunity for big scale climate impact and affecting a lot of people. But in a place like Wisconsin, a lot of people live in manufactured housing and over 50% of those people uh, fall uh, below the federal poverty line, but they could be spending $2,000 a year on energy. And they're basically living in what's is housing that was built to be disposable. And it's some of the last naturally occurring affordable housing left out there. And so, you know, we, th we, we look for opportunities like that that really fit where we are geographically and where we think we can make a big difference. And um, it, it's helping us fill a gap that other organizations can't fill. Um, so we look for opportunities like that, but I think we're trying to figure that out at scale in some other areas as well. That's great. Very helpful as always, just hearing you talk through it. So Marge, we have one last question for you which I'm, I can't wait to hear in particular for you where, where, um, 
who you listen to, but uh, the way that we usually phrase it is who inspires you these days. Yeah. Well, so remember that modern lyric poetry um, background. I, most of my inspiration still comes from literature. And um, so I read a ton and I read lazy fiction that isn't going to um, make me a better person. And I read real literature too. So um, I do that a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I was going to say there is a book in particular that I would recommend to the listeners. You know, this is a moment when many of us are trying to be more empathetic and to deal with our own unconscious or conscious biases. And I think mm -hmm. in order for the United States to move forward, we're going to have to be more united. And there, we're such a divided country. I read a book called Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. Um, it's by Arlie Russell Hothschild, and she's a sociologist from Berkeley who spent five years in Tea Party, Louisiana on the ground. And it really made me think very differently about where people I might not agree with politically are coming from, especially working class people experiencing a lot of challenges in a rural area. Really mm -hmm. great book. Um, and yeah, any, I, I could, my problem with books is that there's like 75,000 of them that I, we should recommend <laughs> to everyone all the time. But one thing I do try, I read a lot of memoir and I've been reading a lot of memoir by African-American people to get a more visceral understanding of what it means to walk around in that skin that I will never experience. So that's a beautiful one. It also, I feel like part of the shout out here is, is to, to the humanities. Uh, I'm sure many of our listeners have engineering and science degrees. And, uh, and so I appreciate Marge that you are yeah. reminding us of the importance of, uh, of the humanities in general, but in, in uh, literature and uh, biography, that's all. That's yep. I, uh, and poetry. Yeah. We don't read enough poetry. And in times like this, man, it is more essential than ever. Yeah. I, I want to give a shout out to Jericho Brown, um, who wrote The Tradition that just won the Pulitzer. Really awesome collection. Um, Tiana Clark's I Can't Talk About the Trees Without the Blood and Terrence mm -hmm. Hayes's um, Sonnets to My Once and Future Assassin. Wow. Um, all people of color, all amazing collections of poetry. And there's really a lot happening on the literary scene to try to tear down some of the privilege and get more voices heard. It's a pretty exciting time right now. Yeah, totally agreed. Um, yeah, it's been... I've, I've been in deep in that world recently and I've, it, for some reason it's taken me this long to realize that um, black women have a very incredibly unique uh, and probably the most powerful voice I've ever read on what the future might look like. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that told through, you know, an amazing amount of, I just finished a trilogy by N.K. Jemison that's just like, you know, completely life-changing in every way. So I hope everyone cool. gets a chance to read, <laughs> to read uh, books by Black women. Um, well, that's a lovely place to end, Marge. Thank you. All right, Ed. Well, thank you. And, you yeah. Know, thanks, thanks for the moment of reflection and the, the connection we can make with each other. Yeah, that's that's what we're here for. I think we really are finding that these moments 
perhaps now more than ever are really important for our community to sort of take that time to to connect with each other and to I don't know you know it's a, it's a combination of what happens when you get together with your friends and talk about the discomfort that you feel with the world <laughs> yeah. I think it, yeah. I, you know I mean this is just hopefully a slightly bigger scale of doing that um so we really appreciate having you here um thanks for all of your time thank you and with that that is it for us for this week in women and sustainability design the future uh, thanks again to acuity for hosting and to you all our listeners please leave us a review on apple it really matters and it helps people find us stay safe and we'll see you next week <laughs>